0: My name is uh, Bryant, and uh, it's a joy to be back with you. If you're visiting Hope this morning for the first time, welcome. We're delighted that you're here. You're going to be glad to know that I am not Pastor Derek. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, that guy over there. So you're going to want to come back next week and listen to uh, a a sermon preached from a man who's very gifted uh, by the work of the Spirit. It is a delight to be back with you. My wife is up visiting our grandchildren this morning, so she is not with me. And uh, you'll be maybe disappointed to know I don't have any uh, tour bus illustrations this morning. I've already had a few of you ask about those, but I don't have any of those. But I've got something else even better. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, Pastor Derek began a study for us through the book of Titus a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to continue in that study this morning. We're in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 15. I think it may be on the screen above me. If not, open your own copy of the Scriptures, and let's uh, give now our full attention to the reading and the preaching of His Word. From Titus chapter 2, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in every respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes, please, to behold wonderful things from this portion of your holy law. Thank you for giving it to us today. Thank you for speaking to us through uh, your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So do that today, Father, we ask, as you renew your covenant with us. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So my wife's mother and her sister opened a store on South Padre Island some 35 years ago, and for that length of time, Jennifer and I have been traveling back and forth to the island from our home in McKinney, where we would vacation some, we would work in the store some, but we would go down at least a couple of times a year every year. And we would oftentimes be there over a Sunday, and there was a... a, A church on the island that uh, was uh, uh, strong in in preaching that we attended several times, and then there was a church mainland over the causeway in Port Isabel that we decided to visit one particular day, a mainline church. Uh, We were certain that the liturgy was going to be strong, so we made our way there this one particular Sunday, moved through the liturgy. The rector came down off of the chancel out into the congregation and said this at the beginning of his sermon, when I was in seminary my professor told us that a sermon ought to be about two things, it ought to be about God and it ought to be about 10 minutes (laughs) and he began to laugh, well I timed him, he was long winded that day, he preached 11 minutes and he told us several stories, he told us lots of thoughts that he had but he never did refer to the text that had been read that particular day. I, like you, probably have read many articles from newspapers and magazines and so forth on things that people expect or what people like in preaching. Usually that list is the same. They want something short, not long. They want a little humor. They they want it to be relevant to their life. They want some application. They don't want anyone to use the S word and talk about sin. They certainly don't any, want anyone to use the H word and refer to someone going to a place called hell. They want something that's good for them so that then they, when they leave, they feel better about themselves, they feel happy, they feel positive, they're motivated to get out there and just do it again for another week. We've probably read all of those, uh, and it's not just something that we read from... Uh, individuals that are online or uh, in magazines, but even some pastors are leaning in that direction. Let me give you a quote from Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church out in California. He said this, "'The first Reformation was about doctrine. "'The second Reformation needs to be about behavior. We uh, "'We need a Reformation not of creeds, "'but a Reformation of deeds.'" You'll remember, I hope, if you were here two weeks ago when Pastor Derek gave us an introduction to this particular book, He told us that what uh, often happens, and you probably can verify this in your own life or lives of individuals that you know, when we begin with a list of do's and don'ts, when we think about taking a list and making that our application for life and living the godly life that we believe we're supposed to live, we do one of two things. We fall off into the trench on one of two sides. We fall off on the side of legalism where we follow that list and we follow the don't do list and we think in our minds that we are serving God and we're making him happy with us, that we are actually making him more affectionate toward us. If we just keep this list and we don't do the other things on the bad list, then God will love us more. It's called legalism. On the other side of the road and in that trench is called antinomianism. Anti meaning no. Nomianism, the, the Greek word nomos meaning law. No law. Licentiousness. It is the very opposite of this on this side. Now, because I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever it is that I want. Do. Everything that I choose to do is sanctified, sanctified whatever, because I'm saved by grace, not by works. Paul addresses that for us, doesn't he? Didn't he tell us? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound all the more? God forbid, he tells us and that is that is mankind humankind's tendency in as fallen creatures is to land on one side or the other i've actually heard Uh, preaching from this particular passage the list at the beginning in verses 2 through 10 that talk about older to younger and men and women and a legalistic and a licentiousness type of a sermon on on keeping the list or you don't need to keep the list but the the focus is on the list Today what I want to do, my friends, is I want to take this very thing and I want to show you something by turning it upside down. First, let me say this. Look what Paul says to Titus at the beginning. He does not say, listen very carefully, he does not say, but as for you, I want you to teach the older men to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled. I want you to teach the older women to love the younger women and and teach them how to love their husbands. I want you to teach the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. I want you to teach the younger men to be self-controlled and all of those things look what he says in verse 1 but as for you Paul to Titus as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine from that foundation friends now Paul's expectation is the things that we read in verses 2 through 10 are the natural result of Titus being faithful in teaching sound doctrine He says it four times. He says it there in verse 1. He says it again in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. He says it again in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Father. And he says it again uh, in verse 15 at the end. Declare these things, exhort them, and rebuke with all authority. Paul's focus needs to be our focus today, and that is on the gospel of grace, on the doctrines that God gives to us in his holy and and inerrant word and giving our full attention to those things, from that then the natural result is that we would live the godly life as we anticipate and wait for that blessed hope that is ours, Christ's coming again. The church I pastored in McKinney, Texas, we lived in a subdivision, or the church was in a subdivision called Craig Ranch. And the motto on the sign, Welcome to Craig Ranch, just living the dream. So people would ask me throughout the week, How are you doing, Bryant? And I say, I'm just living the dream. Everyone said that because that was the motto of our subdivision. Well, today, friends, I want, to know, I want you to know that what we are called to do is live the doctrine, to give our full attention to that. The gospel that's found in the doctrines that the Lord unpacks for us. I want to do it in three ways today. Look at the next to the last verse. Paul gives us this wonderful outline. He gives us three things I want to focus on. Something for us, something for himself, and something for good. For us, for himself, for good. Paul begins with grace, doesn't he? Look at uh, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all mankind. Here is the doctrine of the incarnation, a doctrine that we must cling to as those who love the Lord Jesus and long for His appearing. He says there, uh, the, the grace of God has appeared, past tense, because he's referring to Christ's first coming, where He took on flesh but we know from all the way back to the very beginning of the bible we find in genesis 1 2 and 3 the the unity of the trinity in all three persons elohim god is there in the beginning god And then we find the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, hovered over the waters, the Spirit. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, what's referred to as the Proto-Euangelion, proto meaning first, Euangelion, the Greek word for gospel. The first gospel is found in the person, the emphatic use of the word he, referring to Jesus Christ who is coming to crush the head of Satan. All through the rest of the old covenant, we have types of Christ's with this promise that one is coming to crush the head of Satan. And then in redemptive history, the son being submissive to the father, the father had declared as Peter preached in Acts chapter two, that God had ordained this before the foundation of the world that he would send his only begotten son to die for our sin. Christ takes on flesh, took on flesh, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, talks about he humbled himself. Some translations read he emptied himself. I don't think that's a good translation because Christ didn't get any, take anything away. Christ took on more. Here's, here's what I want you to think about today. I'm going to ask you a question, but don't shout out the answer because I don't want you to be wrong. <laughs> I'll tell you the answer. Does Christ have a body today? The answer is yes, he does. A glorified body. And in that body, he sits today where? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So here's what I want you to focus on, on this doctrine of incarnation, this blessed, beautiful doctrine. That Christ, who was... At the beginning of all time, along with the Father, nothing was created apart from Him, as the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1. Christ was there with the Spirit and the Father, and at a point in redemptive history, in submission to the Father's preordained will, He took on flesh. He became fully God and fully man at the same time, for how long? For the rest of all eternity." He would never go back to the way He was before. Why? Because He would do that for us. His appearing. He would come to take on flesh to do a work for us that we could not do for us for our salvation and not only that but then he says after rising again from the dead crushing the head of satan now ascending to the father and is seated at the right hand that's why verse 13 we are waiting in this blessed hope for now what his reappearing his second incarnation when he promises to come again as we're going to sing here in just a moment O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. Why would he do that? For us. For us. He would come for us to secure our place in heaven with him for all eternity. But look also what he says there in verse 14. He appeared and he gave. He gave himself for us. Not only did he come appearing in flesh, but now he gave himself for us to redeem us. Friends, I think many times, listen closely, many times we we think like this or talk like this. Jesus came, he died on the cross for my sins so that I can be set free. That's the gospel. That is true. That is very true. But that is a part of the gospel. This redemption is what I like to call all of the shuns, the T-I-O-N-S. Because it would take more than just his appearing. Redemption now is some, the shun. Redemption is paying the price, pay, paying the penalty that is due. How? by imputation, another shun, and that is his declaring that we are now righteous. We're no longer dead in our sin. For the beauty of propitiation, because divine wrath had to be satisfied, and it now was satisfied in the the finished work of Christ, bringing reconciliation, Two things separate now back together again. What occurred in the fall now comes back together by reconciliation. So in the death of Christ, his coming, he now gives us all of these things in his finished work. Redemption, imputation, propitiation, reconciliation, all of these things for us, he says. Friends, that's grace. And that's where Paul begins, with the glorious gospel of grace. He begins there, he continues there, and he ends there. When I went to Covenant Seminary, Dr. Paul Koistro was the president. It's been years ago. Paul went on to be the the president of uh, MTW, Mission to the World, our foreign mission agency in the PCA. He had these huge hands, and he had this really deep voice. And he would stand in the classroom, and he he never used a microphone. His elbows were always right against his side, and he would wave those great big hands with this big, deep voice. He would get up in the pulpit. He wouldn't even wear a microphone. And you could hear him throughout the chapel one particular day. We're coming out of the chapel. Dr. Koistra had been preaching. And one of the students said, Dr. Koistra, oh, grace, grace. In the classroom, that's all I ever hear you talk about. In your preaching, that's all I ever hear you talk about. When are we going to move on? He took those big old hands and he wrapped them right around the top of this guy's shoulders. And he said, young man, what else is there but grace? And that's where Paul takes us, where he starts, where he moves, where he continues. It's all about grace and what he has done for us and the wonder of it. The wonder, if we start there, get rid of the list in your mind, but start with the wonder that he came and he gave He came taking on flesh to give us this gift of life, eternal, abundant, and free, reconciling us, returning us back to the Father. Think of it like this an eclipse. If if this is us and God is looking down from heaven, he sees us sinful individuals that need to be punished for their sin. But Christ comes, the moon steps in front of the sun. Christ covers us with his blood and now what does God see? He sees a righteous individual covered in the blood of Christ, a new creature in Christ. That is the gospel given for us. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. But it doesn't stop there. He also does a work for himself. Look what he says continuing in verse 14 there. He gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness now to purify for himself a people. He came to purify for himself a people, to cleanse us. That is the taking of our sin and the application of his righteousness. That's what we oftentimes in our doctrines refer to our union with Christ. See how vital our doctrines are? The union with Christ that we have. Now, I am in Christ. Christ is in me in part in a very real way because Christ, God the Son, is at the right hand of God the Father. I too am in uh, the presence of God the Father at the right hand because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. It is that union, that double transfer. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Now we are new creatures in Christ. Our identity is found in nothing other than we are new creatures in Christ. The righteousness that we have is a righteousness that's been given to us because God himself said he would purify for himself a people. Is that not a glorious doctrine? A glorious gospel? He would purify for himself a people. Why? He goes on to tell us in verse 14, to make us his possession to make us his chosen one. He referred to it back in chapter 1 verse 1, he called them the elect, writing to Titus to say this is for the elect. In the old covenant, in the Old Testament, they were called the chosen people of God, ethnic Israel, right? But now we're known in the New Testament, the new covenant the elect children of God from ethnic Israel to elect Israel. It's Jew and Gentile alike. It's the new Israel, which is why what he says there, that he came to bringing salvation, verse 11, bringing salvation to all people, this is not a reference to the doctrine of universalism that Christ came and paid the atonement and gives salvation to everybody. Go read Matthew 23 and 24 where he separates the sheep from the goats. We read in our Bible about the place called hell and that there will be individuals that will perish there. It's not a reference to universalism. It's a reference to this. Paul is known as whom? He is the apostle to the Gentiles. What once was ethnic Israel, this, these promises are for the, 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 the people called Israel, now becomes greater by men and women, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what Paul says. There's no difference between male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We are all one in Christ. And so Paul's reference there to salvation to all people means it's for the Gentiles too, which is good news for people like you and me, right? Because that's who we are. That God's grace was greater, even than the picture we find in the Old Testament. It's even greater in the New Testament. Why? To make us His possession. God delights. He delights in looking down on us with favor and affection and see how we are embracing this truth that He gives to us in His Word and living as those children. A summary of the gospel of, of, of grace or a summary of the covenant from Genesis to Revelation and in several books between we read this statement I will be your God and you will be my people that's a summary of covenant theology because for himself he purified us to be his possession how oh, what a beautiful thought which is why then Paul says in our waiting now We're anticipating a glorious what? Hope, which is part of the reason I'm guessing why this is called Hope Presbyterian. Here is our blessed hope that we are the possession of God. He came for us and now for himself makes us purified, his purified possession. Okay, now, and only now can we get to the list you see, it's, it's, it begins with "for us and for himself." It, it, it continues with for him and for, or for us and for himself, and it, it moves throughout eternity for us and for himself. Now we can get to the list of verses two through nine, because Paul is telling Titus to teach these things. What's in accord with sound doctrine. So now we can get to the list. And let me just simply say, that's going to be for your homework. I'm not going to unpack each one of these. I'll simply say a couple of things here. We have a list of older and younger. We have a list of men and women. And we have a list of slaves and their masters. Every single one of them, you look at it, every single one of them has the characteristics of being self-controlled. The older, the younger, the male, the female. All four, of them, and even to the slave, every category that's defined by Paul to Titus has the characteristics of being self-controlled. That probably should tell us something, right? <laughs> that we're a people that have a hard time being self-controlled. But that's in every single one. Older to the younger, hey, in a, few, a couple of months, I'm turning 60. And I'm getting a lot grayer every time I look in the mirror. I was just down in the restroom this morning, and I'm looking like, golly, overnight. What's not turning gray is turning loose. It's just, it's crazy. And I'm spending a lot of time now, my wife and I, reminiscing. My my oldest daughter turned 34 three days ago. I have a child that's 34 some of these tours, I am going to slide one in here. These tours, these young girls, I mean, they're all old enough to be my children. You know, they sometimes refer to me as their dad. You sound like my dad when I say you got 15 minutes. Let's go, 15 minutes. But here's my point. I used to be young. I, it may not look that way, but I promise I used to be young, and I didn't know a thing. Would I want to go back and live my life all over again? Not apart from the fact of, the, of having all the experience that I have as a grown man today. Because that's God's progression in this life. We once are young, and we need help. We need help becoming mature, applying things that are given to us in these doctrines that are ours through the work of the Spirit. And so we have older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women, older to the younger, because the younger are someday going to be the older, and this thing is going to just continue. And then we have the, the difference of male and female. Let me just simply say this. 'Cause that word "submit" is in there, isn't it? Wives submit to your husbands. Let me say this: the list there it is, it drives us all the way back to Genesis chapter one and two where we find that male and female are created equal in the image of God. We are the same, vicegerents, representatives in the image of God. That's how he created us, the same. But he gives us different roles and responsibilities. And those come out then in the way, uh, the, the nurturing aspect. My wife is a nurturer and so forth. So those different things that you read there are in keeping with our... our uh, Our roles and our responsibilities in the way that God created us, different as male and female. The same as uh, uh, in the image of God, but different. So let me just pick out the one, wives submit to your husbands. I mean, we want to rip that one right out, right? I've been on both sides of that. I've had men in my study in McKinney who would sit down and say, Pastor, you need to tell her she has to submit to me. Well, I'm thinking, how's that working for you? I wonder why you're here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let me just draw you back to Ephesians, the same author where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present her blameless, spotless, without blemish. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Let me just summarize and say, there is no wife anywhere who would fail to submit to her husband if she was being loved like Christ loved the church. We want to pick that one thing out instead of omitting the very thing that is called for men to do. Wives, our husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. So now we can look at the list of older and younger and men and women. And now in our living, then we get to that last uh, for us, for himself now zealous for good works, we are passionate in our living now, our loving, that we love to do what God lays out for us in His Word, which is the result of the work of the gospel of grace being applied to us by His Spirit in our heart and our mind. Now I love to do this, I love to pour my life into people, helping them, because they're helping me in the context of being together. If you think of it like this, if you're out here, friend, if you're living in darkness, we're dead in our sins and transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, brought us out of that into his covenant community, giving us life. If that is the work of God's favor, that elective work, whereby he pulls us out of darkness into his light, if it's not ours to win To bring us in here, why would we ever live as if it is ours to lose that he would throw us back out there? We are flower people, tulip, T-U-L-I-P, the five points of Calvinism. We're not daisy people. He loved me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. This is the work of the gospel of grace bringing us in, and now in this context of covenant community, I love to live the Gospel with you, as we long for and await that glorious hope of His coming again, I started seminary actually in late '80s, early '90s in another denomination, a mainline denomination, um, actually right down the road in Austin. I only lasted one semester because I found out just how liberal. That denomination was that I didn't know before I went to seminary. I'll never forget. This is a true story. One day, we're standing out in a common area, about to go into one of our practical theology classes, and I'm listening to two individuals, a guy who claimed to be very conservative, and he was, and another guy who was studying to be a pastor in a very liberal church, and he was, and they were going back and forth about different difficult doctrines and texts in the Bible to the point that this conservative guy said, yeah, but when you, t- when you look in your Bible and you read, you read something like this, I don't remember what the text was, but he said, when you read something like that, what do you do with that? What do you do with that then? True story. The young man looked at him and he said, when I come across a passage like that that I don't like, I take out my pen and I draw a black line right through it because it's not going to be good for me and it's not going to be good for my people. Wow. Is that not the very opposite of what Paul is telling Titus right here? That we are to give ourselves to what is in accord with sound doctrine because in sound doctrine what we find is he has done a work for us to bring glory for himself that we might live for good today and as we await that blessed hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word that teaches us. All of those promises are sealed to us in the finished work of Christ. Our hope begins with the gospel. It continues with the gospel, and it is eternity in the gospel. As we long for your appearing and wait for that appearing, let us now today, Father, live as husbands and wives, males and females, older and younger, glorifying you by loving this gospel even more, loving you even more for the work you've done for us to bring glory for yourself. Would you do that, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.